One of the things that sort of brings this all together about the test, one's testimony is the motivating factor of God, which is the love of God. And in our series, when we're talking about the attributes of God, what I want to do today is talk about the love of God. This will probably be a two-part series, depending on how far I can get today. And um, uh, what I want to do is to discuss multiple facets of the love of God and use that as a springboard, uh, sort of the backstory to the gospel that Quinn was telling us. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll ask for his blessing as we go. Father, thank you that each of us have a testimony of how Christ saved us, the Spirit of God bringing conviction of sin, of righteousness and judgment, and brought us to the point where, as was mentioned, we can't do anything. That's how special your love is. It, it's not expecting us to do anything. Your love does all things. Father, we thank you for this, and we thank you that, that we could hear this story from uh, Quinn. And we just uh, want to ask your blessing on our time as we study the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The love of God. There's lots to talk about. I'd like to, oops, that's not where I want to begin. Let's be here. All right. I'd like to begin by the famous verse that many of you know is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish or die, but have everlasting life. That was a verse that saved my mother. She was uh, talking to the missionary in Tokyo. And, uh, of course, as many of us have done, the missionary said, Now, Kazuo-san, read that verse by putting your name in the verse. For God so loved Kazuo-san. And, um, and, and uh, of course, my mother's testimony, which you, you might have heard, was that she remembered that Buddha loves no one, but she would like to know the God that loves me, is what she said. Very moving, actually, that she would put it in that terminology. Now, the interesting thing here is that the construction of the verse is such that it says, in this way, God so loved us. That would be another equivalent translation. And so when we talk about the love of God, I first want to feature the fact that it's, it's fully giving. There's nothing that could have been... Uh, nothing else that have, could have been given. If God loves, he's going to love in this way that he would give, and that's in the text, that he gave his only begotten son. Now, the word only begotten isn't a, is not, of course, a, a reference to you know time. It's a reference to being special, uh, to being unique. The only one of his kind is kind of the idea. And so uh, he's giving the, the greatest treasure that could ever, ever, one could ever have and to give it fully uh, without parsing it up, without dividing the diamond, giving it all. That's the love of God. It, it's totally out there, if you will. Now, this comes to you again in 1 John 4, 9, which I'll turn to to read the context. 1 John chapter 4, 9. And as we talk about it, I want to remind you, as you heard that uh, uh, short gospel presentation through the mouth of Quinn, recognize that it's the love of God that's motivating the whole equation. 1 John 4, 9, in this is love, not that we love God, excuse me, in this was love, that God, in this the love of God was manifested toward us. I was quoting the wrong verse. Quote, manifested toward us. How was it manifest? How was it displayed? 
God has sent His only begotten Son. John uses that term quite a bit, only begotten. And he's saying, of course, that if you want to measure how much, how, how the dimension of love, notice the dimension is that we don't, He doesn't hold back. Now there's a famous story that I've crafted or stole from the late Boyd Nicholson. The late Boyd Nicholson was a, a preacher that had a really cool Scottish accent, you know. And, uh, and he would preach and he would tell the story of uh, how he was sick as a young man. And he was sick as a young man. He laid in his bed and uh, the door, the, the, the rim of light underneath the door was just at his angle of vision. And he could hear and see the family moving about with the shadows of their feet dancing under the strip of light under the door, threshold of the door. And as he was sitting there in bed shivering, he suddenly felt the weight of uh, some really gnarly hard rock candy that was put on his chest. And as he kind of startled awake, he reached up instinctively, grabbed it, and he saw the little boy close the door and the shadow disappear. And so he just held on to it because he knew that was precious to the little boy. Next thing you know, he hears and sees dancing shadows before him, and he comes, he again is startled awake by the weight of a sort of cereal box taped together lying on his chest. He again looks up and sees the the soles of the feet of the little boy run away and the door closed and the shadows disappear. And he instinctively picks it up and he shakes the box to exactly the tune of 27 cents. But he also knew that that's exactly the amount of money, the only amount of money that that boy owned in the whole world. The little boy gave it all. Now, Boyd Nicholson goes on to say in his very, very classic way, he goes, now, you see, we would be happy if all God did was give us palaces to live forever, ivory palaces or gold palaces, and, and we'd be happy with all the angelic hosts serving. That would be great, wouldn't it? But that would not be giving enough in the economy of God. If God were to give enough, he would open up all the cupboards of heaven and empty them out and deposit it in his son so that if you went back to heaven and searched the cupboards, there would be nothing there. They would be bare. You see, the love of God fully gives. That's a very interesting thing. Now, we mentioned this this morning in our discussion with Abraham and Isaac. And by the way, did you notice that as we worship this morning, we actually had several uh, uh, thoughts about the love of God. We even sang about it on multiple occasions. Did you notice that? Now, Abraham and Isaac illustrate this because we can understand the earthly agony of giving your own son to something as a burnt offering. First of all, it sounds crazy. Secondly, why would you ever do that? There's, it's not like you know, I'm going to give my life for the other guy on the firing squad in a prisoner of war camp. I mean, you can see that this is an invisible God. Why would you give your son? And, and 
suddenly we get this agony, this almost uh, tension within the soul of the love of a father to a son and the love of the son to the father and yet to have that divided like that and to give him freely with all of that emotion, the agony of soul and what it means is the same agony of soul that the father would have, the Abraham would have with Isaac, so God the father and God the son no doubt would experience and thus we understand that fully giving is very costly to the throne. The love of God. It doesn't hold back. It gives all. Gracie's not in here, but when Gracie was younger, she would uh, she would like to share dark chocolate Kit Kats. They're still my favorite. And she would go and she would get it out of my little um, refrigerator. We have a refrigerator in our closet because I didn't want the other kids to know I stashed things there. And uh, she would bring it out. And no matter what, when we would share it, if I said to her, oh, can I have a bite of yours? She'd immediately just give it to me. Didn't care. Just give it to me. That's changed a little bit since then. But nonetheless, <laughs> very powerful illustration. You know. See, the love of the love, when you love someone, something, it isn't a labor, is it? It's just fully given. I'm at your disposal. That's the beauty of God's love. So that love is what's supposed to be our motivating factor. We love because he first loved us. Well, how do we then love? Like he loved us, fully giving, fully um, emptied, if you will. But there's more. There's a lot more, actually, and we're only going to do a survey. The love of God seeks to save and preserve or reverse you see, the, the point is, is that the love of God just doesn't only fully give. It also is very constructive and strategic. And here's what it says in 1 John chapter 4, 9. We'll read it again since I just read it. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world. And look, I put it in all caps, that we might live through Him. You see, there was something very strategic. What does that mean? Well, you see, there's a lot of things we do and we love to do them but they don't add any value. They're just enjoyable. Uh, they may not actually achieve something. Well, God's love was strategic, pinpoint, razor sharp, gonna, the arrow hitting the target kind of love and hitting the target and the greatest need that we would have. And that need is that we needed life. And we just didn't need life where we could take a breath on a respirator. No, no, not life like a, a, a life as a, a contained in a patient with paralysis. No, no, no. He says abundant life. That word's in the text. Abundant life, full life, that your life would be full of joy, that my joy would be in you and your joy would be full, overflowing. And so when God's love reaches out, it's not only the quantity that's involved, it's the quality, it's its intended result, it's, 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 uh, it accomplishes. Now, what happens is, oh, before I say that, let's go on to 3.16, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then the next verse, it says that he did not come to condemn the world, that he wasn't coming to actually put the jaws of death on everybody, the shackles of death. What he was coming to do was to bear that death so that you would not be condemned, so that the world might be saved through him. 
You see, this is the ultimate of uh, the strategist, the ultimate of genius, isn't it? I don't only exist with my quantity and quality of love, but it actually benefits in the most extraordinary way, the most necessary way, the recipient of that love. And that's how it is for you. That's the kind of love that God spreads across his creation. Now, what we do is what we do, what we do is we sin. And sin is a very interesting phenomenon. Sin lies to you. Did you know that? It says the deceitfulness of sin means sin lies to you. So what sin does is it makes you actually think that God is less than what he really is. That's the lie. And so you, we doubt the love of God. We doubt that God would love us like he's always loved us with this kind of quantity, with this type of quality. We, we begin to think, well, I don't know, because clearly I didn't love God that way. Surely God can't love me. Look at what I am. Look at what I've done. And we begin to grade God down on his love and think that he loves at a lower level, a more base level, where there are circumstances where he'll suspend his love. There are moments when God's love will be um, less than friendly. Where do we get that? The deceitfulness of sin. Sin as a way of warping our faculties to truly grasp and maintain the proper understanding of the love of God. Now, if you let that go on too long, it causes all kinds of problems. It causes uh, a measure of spiritual depression. It causes a sense of loneliness, of isolation. It causes a sense of, of, of kind of wandering and being lost. And the thing is, the, tr- the, the, the solution is to actually go back and have the correct measurement, the correct perception of the love of God. And that's why we did this series, because many of the attributes of God are what we're missing in our lives. We accept this version of God that is not true. And so we want to go back and establish the, the true figure of the love of God and his love in this case. Now, I want you to see something here. The love, uh, love of God loves the unlovable. The love of God loves the unlovable lovable. Let me introduce this by a story. Many years ago when I was working, um, we, we had various individuals come in. Their lives were riddled with all kinds of twisted moments with drugs and alcohol, perversion. It was hard to see. And when those individuals would come in, they would be, and I'm speaking generally, no particular person, they would be, they'd be very obstinate, very uh, um, demanding, and uh, would, would say to me, doctor, give me some drugs, I hurt, I hurt. And I'd say, well, let me think about that. And in a millisecond, they'd be asleep. And they'd wake up. I said, how's your pain? Oh, it's bad, it's bad, give me some more, give me some more. And we would have this round, and when I wouldn't give them what was desired, they would pour out cursing and swearing. Some would threaten my life, and some would uh, take a swing at me. You know, those moments, I would say, would be an unlovable moment, wouldn't you? I mean, you're there to try to help someone, and 
do what's best for their lives, do what's best in their short and long term. But to then to turn around and spit at me, literally spit, take a swing, try to hit me. Quickly, those feelings of, how do we say, rage and anger, vengeance, pretty much just wanted to, you know, came into my life, came into my heart. And I, and I, I struggled with that. I still struggle with that. And I came across this verse that talks about God loving when we're unlovable. It's, of course, Romans 5.8. I remember Michael, who's our substitute visiting not, so, not to be away from home too much longer son, the song leader this morning. He used to read this in Breaking the Bread all the time. I'll begin reading in Romans 5 and verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, for scarcely a righteous man, for a righteous man one will die. In other words, once in a while, if you're a really, really, really outstanding person, someone might take your place and die for you. And, and perhaps even if you're just a little bit less than it, if you're just good, you're just a good guy, someone might die for you. But no one dies for the criminal. No one dies for the obstinate. No one dies for the drunkard. No one dies for the one who wants to punch you, who wants to uh, claim your, uh, 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 to pour out uh, um, uh, expletives upon you. No one wants that. And what the, the writer, Paul, is saying is Christ died for that situation. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Nasty sinners, smelly sinners, sinners that had the stench of death upon our lives, on our fingertips, on our breath. That person is the one that God specifically showed his love to. You see, God loves the unlovable. I, I, I read that out of Romans 5.8, but it's, it's well stated in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and this one is is a little more uh, um, descriptive. It says uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of the world. You were running. You were running after the path of this world. The path of this world will end in judgment and, and darkness, as, as Quinn mentioned, uh, of, uh, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works and the sons of disobedience, not only were you moving in fast motion with the, with the vessel that's going to go off to the edge of the cliff, you were loving it, you were instigating it, you were doing it. Look at what it says in verse 3. We, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We would use our intellect to come up with more ways to sin. This is what is what it means to say that he demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners. And we're by nature. There's just something bad, wrong about you that you would be under the wrath of God. Now, that's the person that God chooses to love. Look at what it says in verse 4. Because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, the love of God is not daunted by the unlovable condition. The love of God is not scared, well, scared of the adulterous woman, scared of the lady that had the seven demons, Mary of Magdala, 
Not The love of God is not frightened by the, the lady who would come in, the unnamed lady of Luke 7 in Simon's house, who was a sinner. In fact, the love of God shines brightest and more brilliant, if you will, in the moment that there's sin. But, you know, we forget that, don't we? We think that God's love is, is graded on a curve, is doled out based on the lack of sin or, or um, you know, our sinlessness. And the truth is, is that we're not sinless, we're forgiven. And as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ actively cleanses us from our sin. When we confess, he, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that means that the love of God does not shrink. It doesn't get parsed out. The love of God is best in the face of the unlovable. Do you feel unlovable today? Because the truth is, every one of us started out as unlovable nothing redeemable, nothing desirous, nothing that would cause someone to love. That's what makes the love of God so mysterious to us. We think that when I love something, it's because there's something over there that I want, that I'm desiring. So certainly there's got to be something about me that God would desire. And guess what? The sad truth is, is there's nothing. Absolutely nothing, which tells you that the love of God has to be of a greater quality to spontaneously come to a person who has nothing redeemable. That's the love of God. And when we try to wrap our minds around that, we get lost in the curves and the twists and the turns. But that's the kind of love that changes a soul. That gives you identity. That gives you place, value, immediate standing with God that He would fully love you with all of His quantity and all of His quantity, especially, all of His quality and quantity, especially in a moment when there's nothing to be loved about you and me. That's what Quinn was saying. Right? There's more. There's more. Just a few more. Don't worry. We'll be done by noon. Oh, oops. That's what I want to say. Paul recognized this. In his own testimony, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he actually says this. He, in, uh, I'll, I'll read it to you because uh, Paul really had a, a, the love of God gripped him. And he says this in 1 Timothy th- uh, 1 verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it in un- ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and look, and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And another place in Galatians, he writes this. He says, "Who and, and uh, uh, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how that gripped him? He couldn't believe that God would love him. You know, he was actually, Paul was actually a murderer. He was actually a guy that was was an assassin against the early church. And Jesus Christ would meet him face to face. And in that moment, the, the, the deity of Christ of Jesus was recognized. And Paul knew from his great pharisaical training that to see God and live is incompatible. 
And yet he was breathing. And yet he was told that God was, uh, had, had plans for him and that God was going to use him and that Paul needed to respond. And Paul immediately melted. And I think from that moment on and on the rest of his days upon the earth, he knew that he should have died that day on the Damascus road. And he didn't. And yet he had a litany of not just, um, uh, not just Pharisee, uh, uh, hypocrisy. He had a litany of he was using the religious right to cause murder, using the, the, the religious uh, cloak to, to throw people in jail. And he was arrogant and prideful and he would raise up and yell and scream and argue his point. And he was so desperately wrong. And yet in the presence of Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus, he melted because the love of God flooded his soul. The love of God loves when you're unlovable. But there's more. Love of God is merciful. Ephesians chapter 2, 4, which we read just a second ago. I skipped over the clause that I'm highlighting now. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. This idea that the love of God has not, has other tentacles to it. The love of God has a quantity, a quantity to it, a quality to it, uh, and, and the love of God loves when unlovable, a certain sort of dimension to it. But the love of God has tentacles, outshoots, sprouts, if you will. And one of those is mercy and the other is grace. And, and this mercy is, is helping in a situation when there is really a pitiable, uh, deplorable thing to, to mess with. And you get your hands dirty and you mess with it. That's the, the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, right? The, 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 uh, Jewish fellow who was, um, beat up and the road and left dead. Do you know what it's like to see a traumatized victim and the blood everywhere and they're sort of half conscious? And you come along, the good Samaritan comes along and of his own supplies, his own uh, EMS unit, puts him on the donkey and pays for all of his health care. What a, what a story. This is, this is how the love of God is. It shows mercy to the most pitiful situation Ever. The love of God has these as its tentacles, as its sprouts and shoots that just come out alive. And that's what God did. He had to show mercy. The love of God doesn't express itself in, in, in very many other ways, but mercy is one of them. Now, if you look at some of these, it says rich in mercy. What does that mean? Excessive in quantity. It has more than abundance. And then, uh, and then the word because, that, that sort of uh, conjunctional word that means that it is the cause of this great mercy, this immenseness of mercy. It, it, God's love moves it forward. So the love of God has that merciful element. I'm very grateful for that because I live on the oxygen of God's mercy. Now, David understood this in Psalm 103, and he wrote about it, and and I I need to read it. I don't know if you remember, but it was probably a year or two ago I gave a message on the chesed of God. Do you remember? Or chesed of God. And that's the word mercy here. It's translated, or it's translated quite frequently, mercy in the Old Testament, but it actually is a loyal covenant love. In other words, I won't give up on you because I, of my own accord, consider you of great value. And David writes about it. The Lord is merciful and slow to anger. I'm in verse 8. Uh, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. That's shesed or hesed, this 
God's love. He has not dealt with us. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. You see, that's a pitiful situation. Our sins, if he were to deal with us according to that, we would be eliminated. He's not punished us according to our iniquities. And I love this poetry. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. The hesed of God. If you could measure the heavens above, then you might be able to put a a a a a, a, a weight to the to the love of God. But since you can't measure the heavens above, it means that the love of God is eternally everlasting. And what happens is that it gets deposited upon you in this merciful manner. There's more, and we're almost done. The love of God comforts. Now, this is out of chapter uh, uh, 2 of the Second Thessalonians. I put it up here. God, The God and Father uh, who has loved us. See how the word loved is connected to the next clause? And given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. God, that Father, will comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. God the Father has loved and He has given. See how they go together? And what else? The love, uh, when it's given, it, it provides unending encouragement. That's everlasting consolation. And when He comforts, he, he actually comes along and will comfort and encourage you along the right way. Now, many of us uh, in our lives, we've had somebody do that when we've come along and we're, we're, we're sort of depressed and, and we can't seem to take the next step or find the next doorknob to grab. And all of a sudden, somebody comes along, they put their arm around you and they say, now listen, I know you're discouraged, but I think we can get through this together. I think we can take the next step. I can't take the next well, step with me and, and we'll do it together, all right? And you remember those moments in your life when you're emotionally drained and, and the problems are bigger than you can imagine? Well, this is what God does on a regular basis. Why? Because He loves you. Because the love of God is designed to be an encourager to you. Man, I never thought of God like that. I always thought that God had to speak in this book and then, you know, maybe if I'm in the right mood, I might be able to catch some encouragement. But it's as if the arms of God's love just reach out and pull you in and give you the hug of all hugs. I saw that at the funeral on Friday. The Williams family, they lost Sonny. Sonny was our friend, wasn't he? That guy encouraged me by his hugs. I have a funny story about him. Let's just take a second. He and Micah Williams, who you know, came up to Kansas City, and uh, they wanted to meet with me. I thought I was in trouble. We met at Starbucks. Now, Sonny, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's passionate. And he grabs my face in Starbucks, and he holds like this. Steve, you've got to go serve God. And he kisses my forehead. It was like a Godfather moment out of the movie, you know. (laughs) Sonny was encouraging me. Countless times. That man would come up at camp when I was down there. To you, maybe? And just sit down and just act like I was the only person in the world. Love that about that man. 
Did you know he got that from his father in heaven? That's how your father in heaven does this kind of thing. Because the love of God encourages you. All right, let's finish. Finally, the love of God loves when no love is returned. In this is love, not that we love God. We didn't have anything back at him at all, but he loved us still and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It describes his love. Not The description is that we didn't love God. The revelation is that he loved us and he sent his son and told us of God's love. And then he illustrated it by being the propitiation, by being that very, that very mercy seat that I needed so desperately. My sins were screaming out of uh, to God. I'm stubborn, I'm rebellious, and I, I want to raise my fist to you. And God takes this big plate of mercy like over the Ark of the Covenant and puts it right on top and he hides hides those sins internally in himself while he doles out mercy to the rest of us. Now that is loving when there's nothing, no love returned. And that's Luke 6, 35. You be like your father. Your father who is kind to the unthankful and the evil. (laughs) That shocks me. Why didn't it say, and he's kind to those who are sometimes kind and just have a, a, a bad hair day? Somebody who's hangry. Normally they're okay. You give them a Snickers and they're fine. No, 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 no. He is specifically targeting when no love is ever given back. You see, I think the love of God is to compel us. That's what that word is, compel. Drive us in one singular direction. And the love of God is to compel us that if one died for all, all died. We died with him. He's, he, we share with him everything. And he lives, therefore you live, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. You see, the love of God is designed not just to be something we contemplate, not just something we try to wrap our intellectual hands around. The love of God is designed to transform your life. Nobody loves like that. It's to drive you, move you, motivate you as it motivates Him to give with quantity, quality. When there is an unlovable moment, to show mercy, and when no love is returned, the love of God moves you. I was ashamed on one of my last moments where I was working. The patient came in, and they're very belligerent. Um, using uh, multiple expletives, race card, everything you can imagine, screaming and yelling, throwing punches, spitting, everything. And I went in and I took the role of the bad guy. I told him that this is what was going to happen. I sat down and did my job. We had a person has to watch the patient. And I listened to the sweetness and dignity and respect that she gave that individual. 
And I said to myself, why is it that an unbeliever can show more of the love of God than a Christian? Now that needs the mercy of God. Saints, as we go forward and we contemplate our God, as we think about these matters of who He is and what He is and how He operates, the love of God is to compel us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for you. Father, this morning we thank You that we could take a moment to contemplate these matters of the love of God, and yet even in our feeble attempt to express and describe and sort of cont- uh, meditate, we fail. We, we're so far short of the richness of your love. I look forward to that day when I will see you face to face, O Savior, and perhaps in a moment I will be able to appreciate your love for me. But in the meantime, Father, would you allow your spirit to so move us and touch us in such a way, especially in a season Uh, that we're in now, that the love of God would actually cause us to live as He lived. So we ask You that You would move and shape and mold. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.